going to be in a section of John 13, picking up uh, where Pastor Peter left off a couple weeks ago in describing Jesus washing the disciples' feet and the element of the continual need for us to be washed with the Word of God and how we yield ourselves to the Holy Spirit, to Christ, to have that washing done. And today we're going to learn how we, in another way, yield to one another to have the washing of the word affect our lives. John 13, we'll start at verse 16. And we'll go through verse 35. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do. Do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table close to Jesus. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought that because Jesus, Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So, after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. And when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Holy Spirit, we ask for your presence to be manifested to us through the proclamation of your word and through the reception of your word. God, we want our lives to change today. And as we are uh, exposed to ourselves in a way, we ask that your word indeed would wash us and, and purify and refine. 
all of our hearts, our lives, so that as we live together and live toward the mission of your kingdom on this earth, that you indeed would be glorified by the love we have for one another. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. If you are over 30, you probably really don't like getting new things, especially when it comes to technology and electronics. Are you really excited when you get a new cell phone? No, if you're in your 20s and teens, this is great. You get to explore everything, find out what's on there. When you're 30 or above, another thing to learn? I don't have the capacity to learn something new. I don't want the new software. I want the one that I'm used to. I'm functional with. That's good. I like, like can we just keep it that way? I, I, when I got a new phone, I made sure I did the exact same things on other phones so I wouldn't have to learn it. Just to make sure I don't have the brain power to be able to learn something new right now. Don't give me the new software. It's just too weird for me. But you know, a lot of times when something new comes, it's often, and particularly with an electronic device, it, it calls for a greater something from us that we're really not ready to give. Because we want comfort. We want comfort, we want ease, and when something comes against that to where we have to learn something new, it's usually met with frustration, complaining. These phones, why can't they make it this way? And you get the manual, try to read the manual, it's this thick. <laughs> don't think so. Put that on the side. Maybe that'll be in the library or the fireplace come winter. But what Jesus is doing here, and this, this, is, a, this is a locker room scene before a big game. They have been practicing. Jesus with his disciples, they've been practicing. They know the routine. They've studied the plays. And they're coming to this moment where they're having this feast. And Jesus is understanding. We learned this from the beginning of chapter 13, that he knows his time is now. Disciples, eh, not so sure that it's now. They think it's now, but in a different way, maybe. And they're just kind of going with the flow. And it's as if Jesus is telling them, look, everything that you've learned, go do it on the field but I'm not going to be in the stadium. But you're our coach, man. You're the king. You're the one that's supposed to establish the kingdom and we're to, come, we're to reign with you, right? This is what's supposed to be happening here. But Jesus is giving them. He says, no, I've got something new for you. I've got something that I've been saving up. I've showed it to you in little increments along the way, but I've got something for you that I'm going to leave with you because it's going to be most effective when I leave and the one I send comes and empowers you to do what I'm telling you to do, a new commandment he gives them. And the commandment is to love one another. Now, this isn't a new commandment in a way that it's brand new. The disciples, really? We have to love one another? I really like fighting and arguing and I don't want this. It's not brand new, but it's deeper and the object of which is closer than what the Mosaic law taught. See, they knew from the Mosaic law, the Old Testament they had, they knew we're supposed to love our neighbor. Supposed to love God with everything you are, supposed to love your neighbor. And they heard Jesus saying that all along the way when they were walking with him. But now they come to, he says, now love one another. And he gives them, in this passage, he gives them some object lessons to show them what it looks like. Because right with them is... Something, a posture, and someone, Judas, that they're going to need to know how to walk with when they encounter them in the future and how to teach others to walk with them. As he's saying, the example that you see, now go do. And I, 
Really, the, the disciples, in many ways, I don't think really knew what was going on. I think that's why he said, look, I'm telling you this before it takes place. So then when it does take place, you're going to know that, oh, yeah, Jesus told us that. And he really was God. And we really are supposed to live for him. So here he's giving this new commandment, deeper, greater measure. It requires more of their hearts, which would be uncomfortable to the flesh. And so here, this new can be sometimes frustrating for the disciples. I don't know about this, but ultimately Jesus is telling us that we are to love one another. I believe in this passage, you're going to look at three different ways. One is that love in submission, and that, that submission is really a surrender of the will to dependence upon God. God, I'm not going to do it my way, I'm going to do it your way. Love also in the midst of opposition. And then also in this final verse is love... In mission, there's something that Jesus is expecting from us, expecting from his disciples that we need to be walking in and uh, yielding fruit in. But first, look at this. This is the love uh, in submission where Jesus takes the form of a servant. We find this in, in Philippians 2, 7, where Paul says he humbled himself and took the form of a servant, a bond slave, one who had no rights to himself and humbled himself even, even to the point of death and death on a cross the most humiliating excruciating death that can be had and here Jesus comes and is showing them the master is becoming the servant the king is becoming the messenger The one who sends other people to go do the business is the one saying, no, I'm getting on the floor with your feet. And I'm the one telling you what the king wants from your life. There's a servanthood about him. And we find this encounter with Peter earlier in the chapter when Peter's saying, no, 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 don't do that because I think Peter understands something of the glorious creature that Jesus is and saying, no, you are the king of the universe. You don't wash my feet. I think if he was able to finish, I'm supposed to wash yours. Or have somebody else come wash everybody else's feet. But he knew something of, no, you, you are the glorious king, and yet you stoop. You're low to wash our feet. They had foot fetishes probably back then. they like, now? It's, it's a foot. I'm kind of okay with my own feet. Don't put somebody else's foot around me. But here by this demonstration, this really enormous demonstration of washing the disciples' feet, Jesus is showing them the posture the position that they're to have as they wash with the word. They're to be low, of low estate. Now the disciples, they're processing this a little different way. The disciples are looking for, they're looking for the hero king. They're looking for the king that's coming with the sword physically and is going to annihilate people, slash him up, and then, okay, we're here now. I mean, the disciples have asked him, now will you establish a kingdom on the earth? Because what... Because we've been promised something. We're, we've been promised to rule in it. And, and yeah, let's... And they even argue amongst themselves, who's the greatest? No, you're the greatest? No, no, no you're the greatest. I don't think it sounds like that. No, uh, Jesus told me the other day that uh, he noticed when I went over and talked to that little boy 
you know, because we learned our lesson, because we, we sh- shimmied the little boys and girls away, and Jesus said, no, bring them, and he noticed me. The disciples aren't quite getting something. And Jesus not only is telling them, but is showing them. Don't we need object lessons? We're like little kids. Can you give us a little object lesson to make, that understand, make me understand that? He's given them that object lesson in order to, to demonstrate this is your position. Though you have a title of apostle, your position is to be low. Though I'm sending you out, you're not greater than the one who sends you. You're to be the one that serves. Jesus is giving them the demonstration, the posture of a selfless love. A love that seeks the good, the benefit, the cleansing of another person before themselves. But the disciples here, they are, what's in it for me? They even asked him. Peter says, you know, after the situation, the the conversation with the, uh, the rich ruler, and Jesus then says, it's easier for the camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Who can be saved? He says, with God. It's possible. With man, it's impossible. With God, it's possible. Peter chimes in, hey, Jesus, we've left everything for you. What are we going to get? What's in it for me? And Jesus, being the humble king that he is, didn't, didn't sarcastically annihilate Peter in that moment. He says, yeah, you'll be, but wait. There's other things you need to know before that. You need to know how to walk in that. You'll be blessed, he told him. But yet, the disciples, they're looking for something. They're looking for a position. They're looking for a title. They're looking for something that's going to kind of connect them to Jesus in a way. Or just uh, amongst others, even themselves and the twelve, they're looking for a little status to be noticed. and, And it plagues each and every one of Jesus' disciples today. See, our flesh, we, we want something. And we figure out ways to get noticed. We figure, even if it's, if we figure out ways to get noticed by standing up and proclaiming ourselves, and we figure out a way to get noticed by standing over here ignoring everybody else. We're doing the same thing. I want people to pay attention to me. And however way I can work it, I'm going to get people to pay attention to me. Positive, negative, however you want it. Pride affects us. There's, there's a desire for prominence that plagues discipleship. And that prominence is a desire uh, to, to kind of, it's really, it's a desire not to stoop down anymore. Whereas we're first, uh, we first come into a relationship with Christ, we love, oh Jesus, you're the greatest thing, you've saved me from so much. How can I serve? How can I serve? How can I serve? How can I serve? There's some, something happens to us. Where before, we're at everything, serving, can't figure out, we can't get enough, and, and something's different. Then, all of a sudden, we'd rather have a conversation about Scripture than serve tables. We'd rather counsel somebody than go do something that we think might be menial, or somebody else can do that. We kind of, I think we lose a reflex, a serving reflex. There's a prominence that we seek, and, and it's based on moral maturity. We just think, you know, the things I used to do that now, you don't have to compare to anybody else, but usually have favorable, compar- favorable comparisons with others. You see how they're living, and you don't live that way, and you know, person's missing something of God, and I'll pray for them. 
But really, there's a, there's a prominence. There's a, wow, I'm, I'm doing pretty well, aren't I? Because I'm not, I'm not like I was. Well, I'm not going to talk about what I'm doing now. But I'm not like other people either. And that's, well, we get this prominence. And there's a prominence when we think we've arrived doctrinally. There's a doctrinal maturity. And we, we, we want to tell everybody what the Bible says. We want to tell, no, no, the Bible says this. You're doing it wrong. The Bible says this. You know, there's a zeal in that. And there's, a, there's I think, sometimes... Hopefully, most of the time, there's a desire for the betterment of the other person, but there's this little twinge of, what's in it for me? How does this make me feel? How, how can I be, feel better or be better or look better by knowing doctrine or age in Christ? There's a prominence, well, I've just been saved for so and so years. And, and sadly, I, I just really hope this doesn't happen, in our church, but sadly, there, there's uh, a quelching of the spirit that happens with the aged in Christ when they're not vibrant in their faith, when you're not experiencing the passion that you know you once had, and there's a passion and desire to want to know God more. You can't get enough of Him. When when something gets stagnant, and I think it's pride. It's just pride in who we are, our own independence, our own desire to be our own boss, and that we have other people who are excited, and there seems to be this, oh yeah, you just wait. You know, that'll fade. That'll... Oh, I hope we don't do that to new believers or those who are new to the church and excited about life, excited about serving Jesus. And they get in touch with some just old, cratchety Christian who... Do you love God? You need to love one another in a particular way. Stooping down. We can have a prominence based on achievement, whether that's a natural achievement, whether that's a spiritual achievement. You know, that, there's, a, there's particular, um, oh, these little, these things that creep in. It's this pride that creeps in, and, and we get used to the aroma of it, and so we don't really know it's there, but there's a pride in anything. You may have shared that you were working on, just sharing the gospel with somebody at work, and you're just pursuing them, and you're connecting, and then you share the gospel, and they pray to receive Christ, and then you feel, God used me. Wow, God used me. Let's go find out how he used me again. Now I'm really excited to find... Hopefully it's not so pervading that we're giving into it, to that type of control. But there's an element that it, it creeps in. But when that begins to creep in, understand where Jesus is giving this object lesson is it creeps in on care for the body of Christ. It creeps in when there's not a reflex to stoop down anymore and serve. With the word, with love, with care and compassion for others. There's a, there's a root of self-righteousness and independence that creeps in. There is a Samuel Logan Brengel in all of us. Look at this quote from Kent Hughes in his commentary on John. He says this, in 1878... When William Booth Salvation Army had just been so named, men from all over the world began to enlist. One man who had once dreamed of himself as a bishop crossed the Atlantic from America to England to enlist. He was a Methodist minister, Samuel Logan Brengel. And now he turned from a fine pastorate to join Booth Salvation Army. 
Rangel later became the Army's first American-born commissioner. But at first, Booth accepted his services reluctantly and grudgingly. Booth said to Brangle, you've been your own boss too long. And in order to instill humility in Brangle, he set him to work cleaning the boots of the other trainees. And Brangle said to himself, have I followed my own fancy across the Atlantic in order to black boots? And then as in a vision, he saw Jesus bending over the feet of rough, unlettered fishermen. Lord, he whispered, You washed their feet. I will black their boots. Have you been your own boss too long? Calling the shots, drawing lines on where you'll serve in the church, where you won't. It's as if an an announcement is made, it it just flies straight across the top of your head, goes in one ear, out the other, because there's a line. You may not have even known you've drawn a line, but there's something that you just won't do. I will not do that. It could be you're the greatest servant when it doesn't have to involve conversing with people. Because your line's over here, right, at Covenant Group Ministry. Could be that you're the greatest, you think you are, the greatest expositor of the scriptures in the counseling aspect you have. And you're, God's just giving you a gifting and counseling and your Covenant Group Ministry is where you thrive. But there's no door hanging for you. Do you see the discrepancy? Do you see when one begins to affect, we draw these lines, we become our own boss, and we lose the reflex to stoop. Say, I need to serve. I need to be thinking more of you than I am of myself. And it's not, I don't think it's so much that we look for others to do, or somebody else to do that. If that's occurring, that's wrong too. But I think it's more of a, we just don't jump to it. Show up late enough to where the hard work's already finished. There is, we know, there's a sense that when we wash feet and we wash, when we serve with an aspect of the betterment of our brothers and sisters in Christ, that humbles us. And we should be embracing that type of humility. Andrew Murray in his book, Humility, so an affecting book. He said, accept every humiliation. Don't try to fight it. Don't try to figure out. uh, Just accept it. Okay. I accept this humiliation. I've gotten to the point, especially with the teenagers, they always pinpoint when my words mesh and all this kind of stuff. So now I just repeat the mesh stuff. My words will get confused. I'll jumble them together and just, yeah, okay. Yeah, I did that. I said that. I and it's helpful for me to do that because I, I don't want to, I want to say it right and make sure that my prayer is right. Now, a long time ago, is I'm just going to accept. My words come out jumbled sometimes. I can't figure out how to put one in front of the other, like the little word train. Sometimes it crashes. Accept every humiliation. Why? Because Andrew Murray says this in chapter 1 of that book, Humility. Humility is the sense of entire nothingness. And we leave room and make way for, for God to have room in our lives to be all. 
Is that how we're operating within the church? Is that how we're operating with others in the church where we have this sense of entire nothingness to where we're saying, I am nothing, therefore I want to abase myself and leave God room in my life to be everything because he is all. And I'm so convinced of his being all, I've got to make room in my life for him to be all. And as John the Baptist said, that he would increase and I would decrease. Is there a pursuing of humility in our midst to where when we do get to those moments where somebody needs uh, the benefit of the word of God and, and a truth promised to their lives, they need to grab hold of that because they're being uh, washed all around with other things, the world's mindset. When there are those moments, is there an aspect of our ministering in that way saying, I am nothing, I don't have the right words to tell you. But I believe God does. And it's not a, you know, God says, we ruin something in that. Why? Because it's not, we're, we're not stooping in that moment. We're standing, with a, usually with a finger. But there's, here Jesus is telling his disciples, be ones that wash, stoop down, and be ones that get washed, stoop down. You know, when Jesus was uh, at this dinner with his disciples, they most probably were lying down on the floor. It wasn't uh, Da Vinci's Last Supper, where there's a big long table, Jesus is going like this. It's not that. They were most probably, all the food was in the middle, and they had, uh, they lined up usually in fours around the food, or however many were there. And that's how they would have this Passover meal. And so they would uh, typically lean on their left elbow and reach over with their right arm to be able to eat the food. So now Jesus is washing their feet. Where's their posture? They're not even sitting down. They're low. These pictures are for us to be able to say, all right, Holy Spirit, how do I need to be low? How do I need to be of low estate? How do I give myself for mutual encouragement in the body of Christ and also submit to correction when necessary and respond to it. We can all be about submitting to correction and then we walk out and have no intention of adjusting anything in our lives. No, I want to be humble in that posture. And there, there Jesus, after giving this uh, sense of, look, you're not great just because you have a title. Stoop. Be low. And then he shows them how to be low in the midst of opposition. He turns to calling out, one of you will betray me. One of you is going to turn me in. And get this picture. You have all these men lying on the floor, reaching over, and they're eating, they're enjoying that time. That's why when most probably John was on the right side of Jesus, and he was the one that leaned over, to be able to ask Jesus' this question. Uh, Peter was probably somewhere else, close enough to where he could say, ask him, man, what's he talking about? Ask him. So John leans over. Now, we, type, we, we like to think that the right position to the right of Jesus would be the place of honor, but actually, the left is the place of honor. And he said, it's the one to whom I dip this morsel of bread and give it to him. That's the one that will betray me. Now he gives it to Judas. 
So Judas has to probably be in close proximity to Jesus. Most commentators think that Judas was in the place of honor that night. To Jesus' left. When he dips the morsel, it's easy to think of that as a condemning feature. Mm-hmm. But you know what it was? In that culture, an offer of strongest friendship. Dipping that morsel and giving, giving it to Judas. Now all along the while, we, we, I, I've done this so many times, reading this passage and you, just, you know what Judas is up to and Jesus knows what Judas is up to and you just think all of these things are telling him, you're going to get it dude, you're going to get it, you're going to get it, but all of these things are just the opposite because Jesus in this moment is saying, turn, repent, turn, one of you will betray me. It's the one I offer this friendship to. That's the one that will betray me. It's the one that I've given the place of honor to. That's the one that will betray me. There was a pronounced love for Judas in that moment. So much love that the disciples didn't even understand it. They had no idea what was going on. There was a love that Jesus gave and he gave it in the absence of judgment and condemnation for Judas in that moment. Now, it's, here is the example of Jesus telling his disciples, and I think he's letting them know, I'm, I'm telling you this because when it happens, I want you to know what's happening. So you can refer to what happened and then say, that's how we're supposed to love the people that are, are in opposition to us. Now, a few remarks of clarification. Uh, it's, and within Christendom, it's very easy for people to say, well, you know, Jesus responded to Jews like this, so that means that everybody who's in opposition to us, that's who, how we need to respond to people. Just love, 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 love. Well, Jesus didn't do that. Jesus called the Pharisees hypocrites, a brood of vipers, called Herod a fox. This all means something. He went into the temple and he kicked over tables. I don't think, I love you. Please get out. Whack! (laughs) I think Jesus was a little angry with a righteous anger that says, no, you have no idea what you're doing here. This is God's. Jesus responded differently, but he responded appropriately to who was in front of him. Where's Judas? Judas isn't a Pharisee. Judas has been a close friend. A friend in the advancement of the gospel. And he's wayward. And Jesus is saying, love that one to the end. See, Jesus took a stand where a stand needed to be taken. But here with Judas, he's saying, stoop. You've seen me wash his feet. You've seen me call out to him. You've seen me offer friendship. You've seen me give him the place of honor to the end. Judas is the one that turned. Jesus Jesus didn't kick him out. He knew in his heart there was a turn there. Judas turned. So we, in turn, must do everything with those closest to us who have partnered with us in the sake of the gospel. To the end. Love to the end. And sometimes, sadly, there there are moments where people turn and leave that offer of love. But we have the responsibility of doing everything we are supposed to do. Now, when it's a Pharisee and a wolf, it's speak appropriately to those. It speak appropriately to those who are against the gospel. 
That's, Jesus needs to give us discernment. The Spirit needs to give us discernment on when and what and how to say those types of things. But here, with this example, Jesus, uh, Jesus rather, took a stand with Judas. But it was one of love. And we, we need to love the opposition. But, sadly, there are often times in our lives where we, we aren't loving in those situations, we are judging in those situations. Because when somebody has wronged us, we are much more in tune with how they need to pay than how they need to be loved. And when we have wronged somebody, we are much more in tune with how they deserved it rather than how we need to love and humble ourselves to seek forgiveness and reconciliation. Judgmentalism destroys the church. And it happens more than we think. And it's one of those sins, and Jerry Bridges, I have a... uh, quote from him in his book Respectable Sins he says that judgmentalism is a res- it's become a respectable sin in the church it's tolerated, it's not dealt with overtly, you know why? because it's easy to cloak, it's easy to hide we hide it behind religious zeal passion for the bible morality, righteous stance on life you know we're supposed to stand righteously but it could be that we're supposed to stand with those in the church by stooping and being laid low. It is important for us to look personally in our lives. There, uh, when, when we're wronged, there is a desire for vindication, right? I need, to, I need to try to figure out how to be vindicated. I need to call one of the pastors to get on my side so I can be vindicated in this matter. And if the covenant group leader doesn't work out, then I'm, I'm, getting, I'm getting my ammunition. I'm getting everybody around me because I, I, want, I want to be proved right. Oh, it happens, and it could be that we're just thinking these thoughts as we're driving along, but even if we're thinking them or acting on them, they're judgments. There's a defensive posture when we're observed, or adjustment is brought, an observation for adjustment. Look, I'm bringing this observation to you. It doesn't look like things are working right. Uh, That has the expectation that there needs to be a shift, because we look biblically, there should be a shift in your life because you need to be doing this, and we get angry. At those moments. You know, there is a, I think, a pervading judgmentalism for the church uh, as a whole. And for us to be examining how we do this in our own church. But a disdain for others in their behavior. Maybe their appearance. And it usually, these, this disdain usually is never spoken. It's thought. Or it's given with a look. A sigh. Impatience with others is a disdain for them. Now, we have to first understand a perceived opposition and opposition. Because a lot of times we think we're being opposed, and it's really our flesh that's having a field day. And we need to get our flesh, judge our flesh in that moment to say, no, 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 you need to obey. And make sure we don't have a perceived opposition from somebody or or a group of people or whatnot. Because all of this, even when there's a perception of being wronged, the disdain is flowing, the vindication, the desire for vindication, the desire, uh, the defensive posture when when observation is brought, all that's brewing in us 
even when we're not saying a word. And most of the time, there's, a, there's an unbelief that others are doing the things that they do. Can't, you, just, you just find yourself saying that? I can't believe that person does that. I was driving home on Friday from here and uh, live over in River Ridge, and so go Earhart Expressway home. But sometimes it's traffic nonstop, and you miss the Clearview exit because you can't really see the extent of the traffic until you're past the exit. So, miss the exit, sitting in traffic. But I'm going to get a lot of people mad at me right now. Earhart, and my wife's one of the people that's mad at me for doing this. Earhart's three lanes and emerges into two. When it ends. Traffic. He's the left lane. To go up. Now even already people are thinking you didn't do that. (laughs) Tell me you didn't do that. I do that. I do it all the time. Because what I'm seeing is two lanes of traffic way back there. And nobody in this lane right here. I'm going this way. There was a lady who did not like that. So she takes her car. She didn't like the other 50 people that did it. So she takes her car and puts it in the left lane and stays even with where she would have been in, this, in the other lane. So look, she thought she, thought she was going to be all slick and everything. Well, she had a little car. People, they on the shoulder, passing her up. I did. I even looked at her, kind of, what are you doing? She looked. And she's trying to move over. So I'm thinking, lady, you are risking getting in a wreck because you don't like that people are using the left lane? Now, when I use the left lane, am I breaking the law? Come on, admit it, all of you who hate me. Am I breaking the law? No, I'm not breaking the law. The state has said there's three lanes until this point. Now, if I have a rebellious day and say, I don't feel like waiting at all, I'm going to get across the yellow line and then cut in traffic, I've broken the law. I don't do that. I stay. Now, have I broken your opinion? Yeah. <laughs> Understand. We fall in love with our opinions, even when they are not biblically based. And so we, we get so irritated and annoyed by people who just don't do things our way. That's just not right. Says who? Because I just think it's not right. You become Henry Higgins. Why can't a woman act like a man? Well, we know that, Henry Higgins, you're arrogant. That's why. Do we fall in love with our opinions? Because this is what happens when we fall in love with our opinions. We become guilty of a critical spirit. Then, uh, when we have a critical spirit, nobody can do right. And, and I, you know, we avoid people like that. And if you're, if you're sometimes asking the question, I have no friends, then check. Am I critical? Do I find fault in everything around me? Now, your family is enslaved to you, so they get to hear it all the time. They don't get to avoid you. So you probably think, man, I have no friends. I mean, it's just me and the, me and the kids and the wife, man. Check that. Maybe you need to have humility and love when it comes to other people not doing something that you have an opinion about. Critical spirits, they, they destroy. They destroy parent-child relationships.
they destroy relationships where we're called to be together to glorify God together. Those are the personal things that go on. They're also evidences corporately. You know what the evidence corporately is? You and your mob of friends that all have the same opinion. And you know who you are. You all mob up, you have a thought. I just don't like church this way. And all of a sudden you find everybody else. You got a little mob over here. Mm Mm-hmm, we agree. Did you tell anybody? No. We just agree. Why don't you go tell one of the pastors? Well, you know, I know they're busy. Why don't you, if you have something that you think would be a benefit of the church, why not? Because I'm afraid of being wrong. And I like my little group of friends that tell me that I'm right. That's what I like. I've heard that guys preach on, on Sunday, and I know. I mean, I heard one time, I heard from a herd from, from a person, and, you know, they don't like that. We're not loving. We're not stooping down. We're mobbing up around our opinions, and usually that's gossip. And that's avoiding people that we disagree with. It destroys the church. We have opinions of people outside of the church. Oh, we certainly mob up about that. We have a little conservative mob. We have a little anti-this mob, anti-that mob. And you know what? These people have all these opinions. Sadly, what they're not doing is showing up on a Saturday to give out free school supplies. And that's destroying the church. Look at this quote from Jerry Bridges. The sin of judgmentalism is one of the most subtle of our respectable sins because it's often practiced under the guise of being zealous for what is right. It's obvious that within our conservative evangelical circles, there are myriads of opinions on everything from theology to conduct to lifestyle and politics. Not only are there multiple opinions, but we usually assume our opinion is correct. That's where our trouble with judgmentalism begins. We equate opinions, our opinions, with truth. You know, there is an aspect of, uh, of judging that we're supposed to have a healthy aspect of in the church, and that's judging fruitfulness. We're always supposed to be, we're supposed to be judging our own fruitfulness. We, we look at somebody else's and, and we see their life, and it's not as fruitful as it should be. But in that moment is where we go wrong, because in that moment we have an opinion rather than a promised truth, and we say, well, I just think you need to do this. If, if, there, if there's an expectation that we give people based on self rather than God's word, we've judged them. We've not loved them. We've not stooped down. We've not identified and said, you know what? I know what you're feeling. I know the struggle intimately. Here's what God's word says. Here's what he wants us to do. We are oftentimes more concerned with reconciling people to ourselves than to God. And it is a grievous tendency, and we need to be, I think, haters of it, honestly. But there's a pronouncing of love that needs to happen in our midst. Instead of judging, we are to love one another in the church. We have to consider ourselves of low repute, and we have to serve, serve the one who has offended you. And serve the one whom you've offended. With a genuine interest, listen, with a genuine interest to meet 
a need in that person's life. We are to serve those who have offended us and those whom we know we have offended, and we're to do it by taking a genuine interest, serving them to meet a genuine need in their lives and encourage them. Because you know what that hap- you know what happens when that occurs? We immediately get low. We, when we serve in that way, we humble ourselves. The humility has already taken place because we know I want to be vindicated, I want to be defensive, I want to gossip, I want to mob up. But you know, in that moment when we humble ourselves, Jesus is being proclaimed. And that's what Jesus says. That's what I want people to see. Because when, because we know now we have a mission, Jesus is expecting uh, us to be in that mission together and to love in that mission And that love is in submitted service, in self-abasement. It's in the face of opposition, but it's empowered by the Spirit. Look at verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. Who did Jesus send? I go away, but I am sending the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one that we yield to, we submit to. God, I want to love those around me the way that Jesus loved those around me. I want to do that. Empower me to do that. And there's victory. There's freedom from sin. Where the Spirit is, there's freedom and there's victory. We're more than conquerors when it comes to this. And Jesus said, blessed are you if you do these things. Not just hearing the truths, but doing these truths. You're blessed. Now, I think that it would be something of a a fun feature, but this can't happen. If we were able to, and and I think to a extent the pastoral team does this, um, for new membership process, that little signature line that's on the bottom... What I think we look for as we're discussing everybody that's becoming a member, we look for this type of love. We look for a service to the church in humility. We look for how do you interact with others. How, how well are you, do we know that you're Jesus' disciples by the love you have for others? That's, so in a way, we're looking for love to be the signature on there. Not the name so much as the expression of love. And for us as a church, that we would have a signature. When, when we sign, so often we want to put our own signature, tag our own line on what God does. God does something cool. We just want to make sure everybody knows, you know, yeah, I was, I was blessed to be there. It was great. It was just, man, God really moved. I shouldn't have been there. So why are you telling me that? Love's not the signature in that moment. We put our own name there. Oh, I, 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 I want people to know that I was there. It plagues us. We need to humble ourselves and have the love that we have for one another be the signature of this church. So when people say, Lakeview Christian Center, automatically on that line is love. Oh, how, how effective, how further effective all the things that God would have planned for us. But it happens in a one-on-one relationship. So those that we're partnering in the gospel with. Reminding one another about Jesus. Reminding ourselves about Jesus. His love for us. Love others as I have loved you. He set the example. Now we go in love. Let's pray together.
Jesus, in this passage, you let your disciples know again that you were going away. And Lord, I ask for us this morning that we would have an awareness that, yes, you have sent the Holy Spirit to us. You have sent the Spirit to empower us and to fill us and to, uh, to completely consume everything we are so we can live for your glory each and every day and really have your love control us. But Jesus, may we be reminded at this moment that you are returning. You're coming for your church. And Jesus, when you return, it's our desire that love would be the signature of this church. That you would be pleased with the love that you find us having for one another. Love in serving, love even when there's opposition. Love serving together in a mission for your glory on this earth by your kingdom coming. Jesus, we want to be good stewards of what you've given us. And you've given us truth to be able to walk in and and go after. And we want to see it multiply. We want to see our service multiply. We want, we want to see our, our, our submission multiply. We want to see our love in opposition multiply. That you'd receive all the glory. And you would be exalted. Stand together.